welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Rowan Gray, incoming Assistant Professor of Law at Willamette University College of Law and the founder and president of the Modern Money Network. We will discuss his article, Administering Money, Coinage, Debt Crises, and the Future of Fiscal Policy, as well as the the new and um, really interesting salience of that article in the present moment. So welcome to the show, Rowan. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Um, and it's especially great to have you in a moment when your paper and your work has become so um, remarkably timely. I wonder if you could say a little something about your new project that I understand you're working on. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I'm working on a new book uh, published with Melville House in early 2021 uh, called uh, Digitizing the Dollar, the Battle for the Soul of Public Money in the Age of Cryptocurrency. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, I've been doing sort of research on that for a while, but wasn't expecting it to sort of come uh, up, up into salience so quickly. Um, a lot of the, the research that I've been doing on on coinage that sort of formed the basis of this paper uh, and uh, the work I've, I've been doing in the context of this crisis was sort of background work for that. But it's um, the connections that I drew between between uh, that idea of coinage and the sort of future of digital currency, digital public currency have have really merged and, and fused together in this moment. So it's it's been a kind of, you know, horrible moment in, in society, but an interesting moment for the work I've been doing. Yeah, indeed. Well, so your paper really focuses on a kind of debt crisis we experienced a lot in the past, and we're kind of experiencing a new version of it now, which obviously we're going to talk about later in the interview. But just to use your your paper as kind of framing for where the problem is now, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the sort of relationship between Congress, the Treasury, and the Federal Reserve in relation to fiscal policymaking and debt crises in the past and the sort of conventional wisdom about, about how that worked and how that relationship worked. Yeah, thanks. So the first thing I think is to separate out the sort of two steps involved in fiscal policy, because sometimes they get conflated together in, in the way we think about it. Um, and, and the first step is sort of determining how much to spend, what to spend on, you know, what we would consider the appropriations process. Um, and that's always been sort of the prerogative of Congress. Um, the second element is to determine how to finance that spending, what instruments to issue and, and the institutional structure to, to actually sort of get that money out the door in a certain way. Um, now, throughout most of American history, uh, the, the president actually had a little bit of discretion over how much to spend, even though we sort of wouldn't teach it that way in, in Government 101 classes. Um, on one hand, using things like the contract power, so the president would sort of get the executive embroiled into a contractual obligation that would then incur a monetary kind of debt that the Congress would feel compelled to pay. Um, and the other that became sort of more politically um, contentious in the 20th century in particular was what was called impoundment, which was first used by... Um, uh, Thomas Jefferson, sort of, sort of right at the the birth of the republic, um, but that that involved essentially the president saying, "Well, certain money has been appropriated. I've been told to spend it by Congress, but I'm not going to spend it." And historically, that was used in a, in a range of ways, sort of things like uh, if money was appropriated for a war that ended, or if there was a bridge that had had money appropriated and the bridge had been completed. So they were pretty kind of mild examples, or had sort of reasonable circumstances justifying them. 
but in in world uh, in in the twentieth century, they started to stretch the bounds of how that was used, and it ended up coming to a head with, uh, unsurprisingly, perhaps Richard Nixon, uh, who who tried to use that power in the nineteen seventies to deny funding for certain um, community services, mostly targeted to black communities. And his justification then was, well, I don't have enough money; I've run out of money in the budget, so I'm going to have to cut this spending. And Congress really kind of responded quite strongly against that with the passage of a bill called the Impoundment Control Act in 1974. And that said, you know, when we tell you to spend, you have to spend what we've told you. Um, and, and a similar version of this or a sort of a subsequent proxy battle came up in the 90s under President Clinton with what they called the line item veto, where, where Bill Clinton tried to say, well, I'm going to, you know, pass the budget, but I'm going to strike out certain spending commitments that I don't like. And actually, the Supreme Court uh, overruled that and said, no, you know, you have to accept the, the, the budget in its entirety. So what you saw throughout um, the sort of 200 years of the Republic was a, an increasing tightening of control by Congress over how much to spend and when. When we say to use the power of the purse, you have to use it. But the way what I talk about in my paper is that there's a parallel trend going on on the other side, that other step the financing side. And what we actually see is the opposite trend, which is the executive branch, notably the Treasury, gets more and more discretion over time to manage internal financial arrangements to make sure that they can honour the spending commitments from Congress. So if Congress says, um, you know, we want you to fund a new, you know, Panama Canal, historically, the way that would happen throughout most of the 19th century is that they would fund, uh, would, would pass a bill along with the appropriations bill, saying you can issue these certain kinds of debt securities, these certain kinds of borrowing authority to go with that spending um, requirement. What happened in the early 20th century, starting with World War I and then kind of expanded after uh, FDR, was uh, Congress saying, tell you what, we'll give you basically a general spending limit uh, and then you can make decisions within that spending limit how to allocate funds. So if it turns out you sort of come under budget on this issue and you have you need a little bit more money over here, we'll let you use the spending power that we've given you um, where you need to. And that was the birth of what we now understand to be the debt ceiling. Um, unfortunately, as often happens with these kinds of things, when uh, when the debt ceiling came into existence, it began to take on a life of its own. So it was sort of envisaged originally as like a, a sort of general spending cap, a credit card limit on borrowing. But once the, the number came into existence, it became a political football. And so you started to see uh, Congress and, and the executive branch basically relitigate uh, political battles over appropriations, again, in the context of raising that the debt limit. Um, what we've seen in the last few years, beginning around 2016, was that that debt limit has basically been suspended. So there is no debt limit for all intents and purposes. Every year or two, it, it has to be renewed, that the suspension has to be renewed, and then it becomes a political football again, and people kind of go on the same fights about it. But even while it's suspended, we still have this number what we call the national debt. You know, you kind of go to New York City and on the big side of the Fox building, there's this sort of big number with red lead numbers that's always ticking up saying, you know, how much we're, we're quote unquote borrowing. And, and you know, politicians and the media love to talk about it in terms of sort of $80,000 per American or we're borrowing from our grandchildren or we're borrowing from China or, you know, we're borrowing from bond market investors or something. Um, and what I try to go into my paper is to explain that that this narrative that the government, when it has to finance its spending, has only two options, which is how most people think. 
One is taxing and the other is borrowing. So, you know, if somebody says spend $100 and you can only take in $50 of taxes, then the assumption is you have to borrow the other $50. Um, but what I explain in my paper is that there's actually been a, for, a, a another option available in that moment throughout the history of the Republic, which is to, to create money and use the proceeds of that process, what we call signage, to, to fund an alternative to borrowing funds that we don't have. And this, uh, for, for a long time, was a quite di big difference to borrowing because when we were under a gold standard, if you had dollars, you could demand gold. But if you had government debt, you had to wait for your debt to, to mature or sell it to someone else to get dollars that you could demand gold. But what happened, ironically enough, under Richard Nixon as well, uh, was that in 1973, the US, United States went off the international dollar standard. And at that point... Uh, government debt uh, only promised to be convertible into dollars and dollars only promised to be convertible into other dollars. And at that point, the distinction between government debt and government money, in my argument, largely collapsed. So what we think of borrowing today, we think of issuing government debt. The better way to think of that is issuing a form of money, issuing a special purpose form of money. My colleague Stephanie Kelton, the economist, likes to use the example of issuing yellow money versus issuing green money. So government debt is yellow money and regular um, you know, cash or things like that are green money. So if we fast forward to the context of the, the uh, Obama administration, the, there was a debt ceiling crisis in 2011. There'd been a few before that because, the, as I said, the debt ceiling had become a political football since about the 1980s. Uh, and the... Uh, the Republicans were refusing to negotiate an you know, increased, uh, increase to the debt ceiling. And the Obama administration said, if we don't come to a, a negotiation, if we can't come to a compromise here, um, checks will stop going out. Social security will stop being made. Government will shut down. And a obscure lawyer, a friend of mine named Carlos Mucha, found a provision in the Coinage Act um, that had been introduced in 1996 by a, a lawyer who was the legal counsel for the Senate Finance Committee and then the legal director of the U.S. Mint. And it gave the Treasury Secretary the authority to mint a platinum-proof coin of whatever denomination the Treasury Secretary deemed. Now, most of the rest of the Coinage Act has quite strict limits on the face value of coins. A quarter has to be a quarter. A nickel has to be a nickel. A silver dollar has to be a silver dollar. A commemorative palladium coin has to be $20 maximum. But this one provision, section 315112K, gave the Treasury Secretary authority to make a, a platinum coin of whatever denomination necessary. So what he suggested at the time, and this idea kind of blew up in the media, uh, went all the way to the White House, wrote a legal memo. John Stewart talked about it on The Daily Show. Uh, Jack Balkan and, and Larry Tribe and Paul Krugman were, were commenting on it in public blogs. He said, let's just mint a couple of trillion dollar platinum coins and have the mint deposit them in the Fed and then the Fed credit the mint's account. And then the mint gives that money to the sort of general treasury and we can avoid the debt ceiling. We can keep spending, we can use the signage power, um, and we can we can avoid this sort of horrible shutdown of the government and, and you know, the, the risk that the US is not going to honour its spending commitments. And the Obama administration didn't really want to take that seriously. You know, they love to consider themselves as quite serious people. Um, and the idea of sort of minting a, a coin the size of a quarter that 
it's worth a trillion dollars sounded comical to them. And what they really wanted was the, the, the Republicans to come to the negotiating table. But from my point of view, that idea that, you know, we don't want to consider a legal option and we are going to essentially put a gun to the head of the US economy uh, is, is, is playing politics with a basic element of the, finan- of the financing of, of US government spending obligations that is a serious violation of the, the president's authority there. When Congress says you have to spend a certain amount, the president has to spend that amount. If it has a legal means of financing that, whether it's coins or using regular you know, treasury debt issuance, it needs to do that. And if treasury debt issuance is, is not available to it because of this debt ceiling, then the coin is the only thing left. And I wrote my paper in response to uh, another paper written by a, a law professor at Cornell, where I am now, and uh, an economist, a uh, law professor was named Michael Dorff, and the economist was named uh, Neil Buchanan. And their article was called, How to Choose the Least Unconstitutional Option, Lessons for the President During the Debt Ceiling. And their argument was, if the president has three options available, one is to cut spending unilaterally, one is to raise taxes unilaterally, and the other is to ignore the debt ceiling, then of those, the least unconstitutional, the sort of least bad, was to violate the debt ceiling. And I said, you know, that's basically well enough as it is, but if you're ignoring that fourth option, if you're ignoring coinage, then you are taking something off the table that might be even more legal than all the options you're saying. And what kind of came out of that debate, there was a back and forth between those authors and the various people who were supporting minting the coin. And this was what really stuck with me and motivated me to write this paper and sort of keep it on the back burner for so many years, was a blog post by Neil Buchanan, um, where it was called, If You're Explaining, Everybody's Losing, Platinum Coin Edition. And he basically said, look, maybe issuing the coin is legal. Maybe it's not even economically catastrophic because the difference between debt and money, as I said earlier, is sort of largely um, overblown and, and it's not really more inflationary to mint a coin. So it might be legal, it might be economically sound, but the effect would be to reveal to the public how money really works, to pull back the veil on money, and that would cause anarchy in the streets. That would, that would destabilise the global financial system. And I thought to myself at that moment, if the choice is between telling the truth about how money works, or lying to the public in such a way as you are openly advocating violating the Constitution, then something's gone deeply wrong with our our public discourse. And, and that was the kind of underlying thrust of my paper. Yeah, well, so, I mean, th- I, I mean, this is what I found incredibly provocative and really interesting about this piece. And, and as I said when we were talking earlier, I mean, you know, you, you use the line in your paper, you know, that we should take the proposal of a trillion dollar coin seriously, seriously, if not necessarily literally. And, the, and, and, and how that kind of ought to cause us to reflect on this sort of, um, the, the sort of the way we think about the way the monetary system works. I mean, I wonder if for listeners who, you know, might not be, you know, monetary policy experts, you could give just a really brief accounting of sort of the conventional idea of what's going on and why you think that that fails to account 
for what's really going on. In other words, what does minting a trillion dollar platinum coin and using that to solve a debt crisis problem show about the way money really works and why the conventional story is not the right way to think about the situation. Yeah. So I'll start with an analogy because it might be more accessible to some legal scholars. If you look at the rise of law and economics as a movement, the sort of what we would now consider law and economics, there were sort of previous versions, but in the 1960s and 70s, there was this move to say um, courts should focus on maximizing efficiency and economic growth and then let the legislature deal with redistribution. You know, that was the sort of division of labor posited by the kind of economic analysis of law, Richard Posner style. Um, what you have seen in the last 30 or 40 years in macroeconomics is a similar kind of ideological um, claim about the division of labor between fiscal policy, that is, you know, Congress spending and taxing, and monetary policy, that is, central banks um, influencing private investment activity through usually interest rates. And the idea was let the Fed let the central bank create full employment and maximum you know, available growth uh, and then let fiscal policy do redistribution. And the narrative there that, that was sort of constructed around that was that the central bank controls the money supply, the cost of money, the availability, the quantity, and the Fed, in, uh, the, the, the Treasury and the, the, the Congress engages in purely redistributive policy. So you, you, you tax from people and you give that money to other people. Or sometimes you borrow from some people and then you give that money from someone to someone else. Um, you know, even progressive scholars will use that line. You know, you have to describe who, you, how you're going to rob uh, Peter to pay Paul. Or if you're not robbing Peter, you're borrowing from Peter, and Peter can choose whether to lend to you. And the idea, usually, if you kind of get into the weeds of how those two uh, fiscal and monetary policy infrastructures coordinate with each other, is that the Treasury will issue debt. And a bunch of banks and prime, what they call primary dealers will buy that debt in an auction. Um, and then the Fed will occasionally buy some of that debt from primary dealers in order to replace that debt with money, with, with reserves, with, with central bank um, account money. And then we'll modulate and adjust the quantity of those reserves in circulation in accordance with its interest rate goals and its you know, um, overall uh, macroeconomic stability. Goals. So the idea is that the, you know the, the fiscal policymakers can do whatever they want to do, um, but if they try to borrow too much, you know maybe the lenders will will not want to lend to them. Maybe they'll have to pay too much in interest. You know maybe they'll have to pay it back, quote unquote, in the future. Even though historically the U.S. government's run a deficit for you know two hundred and twenty out of the last two hundred and thirty years, um, there's no sign it's paying anything back soon because it doesn't need to. Um, but uh, but that idea is that if we can't trust Congress, we can't trust the fiscal policymakers to to have control over the purse string. So we need to give it to this independent entity who will sort of be above the political fray and will only focus on stability and price stability and growth. Um, and and that idea uh, relies on this myth that there is something fundamentally different between issuing debt and issuing cash. Because if the difference is, as I mentioned earlier, something more like yellow money versus green money, then what the Fed can do is change the relative composition, change the relative amount of yellow money versus green money. You know, it can go to the banks and say, hey, you've, you've got a bunch of yellow money that the Treasury gave you, a bunch of government debt. Why don't we take that from you and we'll give you something in its place, which, we'll, which we call cash or green money. 
Um, but if if that difference is really minor, it's not that it's much to, more to do with sort of settlement liquidity and, and payment system settlement than it is to do with a sort of quantity theory, then we've actually got the logic flipped. The treasury is the one that issues new assets into the private sector. If the treasury runs a deficit of $100, uh, sorry, run, spends $100 and only taxes 50 back out, then the taxes aren't funding that $100. The taxes are deleting or offsetting 50, but that other 50 just stays out there in the private sector. So you can imagine, you know, some people say it's so great that the government's running a surplus. Well, from my point of view, what I hear is the government took more money out of the private sector than it than it gave back, which is not great if you're in the private sector and you want more money in your pocket at the end of the day. The government spends $100 and only takes back 50, then that's $50 that stays in somebody's pocket. But if you flip that around, if the government spends $50, and takes back a hundred, then, you know, if you're Bill Clinton, you can say, look how responsible I am. I ran a surplus, but that's $50 taken out of someone's pocket. And what you actually usually see in those moments when the government does run a surplus is that the, the, the spending, you know, in the economy is made up for by people going into credit card debt or private debt. And there really is a difference between you and my debt and money in a way that there isn't for the government. Yeah. So my understanding is I mean, the concern that a lot of people have about the the sort of production of additional money in this kind of context would be runaway inflation that, you know, produce, producing more money means they're going to have inflation. I mean, why isn't that that you don't think that that's a concern that we ought to have, at least in the current context and sort of what do you do with inflation in the model that you're proposing? Yeah. No, inflation is always a risk. Inflation is always the risk, really, the concern. So I'm not blasé about inflation. In fact, I care about it a lot. But it's because I care about it that I care about getting it right. And really where that comes in, this goes back to the way I initially set, set things up, which is that there are two stages here. There's how much gets spent, the appropriations process, and then there's how it gets financed. Now, if you spend, you know, three times as much as the economy can absorb, can handle at a you know full employment economy where everybody's got a job and there's you know all the factories are are at full capacity, and then you spend a bunch more money in, then then if people try to spend that money, they might not spend it. They might save it and put under a mattress, in which case it wouldn't do anything, or they might pay down debts, in which case it won't do too much. But if they did try to spend it and you know go to the store then that could bid up the prices of goods and services and that can cause inflation. But the thing that's responsible for that in that moment is the appropriations process. It's the commitment to spend. And it's not whether that spending is financed through issuing government securities or government money or government cash. And there's sort of two little stories I want to tell to kind of make that point clear. One is if you work at um, you know, a big bank, work at Goldman Sachs or something, and you work in their treasury department, their internal treasury department, and that your job in the internal treasury department is to manage their cash flows um, and manage how much cash they have on hand. Uh, if you speak to the people in those offices, and I, you know, I've got friends who work there and stuff, you know, they, call, they talk about their cash holding on hand, but they don't mean $100 bills stuffed under you know, the mattress of the Goldman Sachs CEO. They're talking about treasury debt, short-term three-month treasury bills. So if you're a financial market investor, you're talking about government cash, you're usually talking about treasury debt. So sophisticated financial investors know that government debt 
is money, is its own form of money because it's very liquid. It's very safe. Sometimes it actually earns you a bit of interest. So one way to think about it is like a savings account versus a checking account. If you know you can always get your money from your savings account and just put it over into your checking account, then you're probably going to store most of your money in your savings account to earn that little bit of interest. As long as you can be guaranteed, you can convert it back out. But the reason that you're not suddenly spending you know, your life savings on, on buying milk is not because it was sitting in your savings account rather than your checking account. It's because you don't want to buy milk with all of your savings. So if, if people around the world, investors, are storing trillions of dollars of their savings in, in government debt, it's not because they, they were about to go buy a car and somehow they can't do it. It's because they want to save it in that, in that instrument. Um, even John Maynard Keynes um, said in his uh, general theory of you know, the, the famous general theory that launched the, the discipline of macroeconomics, he said, we can draw the line between money and debt wherever is most useful for our particular purposes. So there isn't some sort of hard metaphysical distinction between the two, and a lot of financial actors will know this. The other story that's relevant here is um, that colleague of mine, Stephanie Kelton, she was the chief economist for the Senate Budget Committee. And she she tells this story um, where she would go to Congress people, you know, senators and things, you know, quite, quite senior um, party leaders, and she would say, um, you know, what do you think about getting rid of the national debt? They'd say, oh, it'd be so good. It'd be so great. You know, my, my grandchildren would be saved so much burden. And, you know, we've just been really struggling with all this government debt. And then she would say, interesting. So what do you think about getting rid of the government securities market? And they'd say, oh, we can't do that. The government securities market is the benchmark for international finance. You know, investors and pension funds, they, they rely on government securities as a safe investment instrument. And then she'd say, you know, they're the same thing, right? <laughs> and and you could sort of see the, the 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 clock in their brain sort of just stop and you know the computer say error you know does not compute does not compute but because we think about government securities in one context as an asset but then when we start talking about the national debt we think of debt in this sort of you know lacanian lack you know it's an absence of something um you know this idea that the government's red ink is our black ink that for every borrower, quote unquote, there's a lender. For every deficit, there's someone else's surplus. To think about it on the both sides of the balance sheet is not how we're accustomed to think about it. Um, so inflation is very real. It's a very real problem. But that, that problem comes with how much we're spending and under what conditions we're spending. It doesn't come from whether we choose to issue one instrument or another instrument. And my point with the coin was to, first of all, simplify this, because we shouldn't require average people to get a PhD in macroeconomics to understand how the government budget works. And secondly, to make it very clear to people that this fear about the national debt and stuff is overblown, because what we see around the world is, you know, when there's a crisis like there was in 08, or when there is now, governments around the world are saying, we're going to spend whatever it takes. We're not worried about the deficit. And that's great. I think that's the right response. But the minute it's over, what we saw in 2009 with the rise of the Tea Party, then the Simpson-Bowles Deficit Reduction Commission, and years and years of austerity, we see a reaction. We see this move of, I can't believe we've spent so much, we have to tighten our belts, because otherwise we're going to deal with this sort of debt overhang we've created. And I'm very worried about that reaction in this moment, and the idea of sort of saying, we can just mint a coin, and it will function exactly the same. It won't be hyperinflationary. It won't do anything cra crazy. Um, is a way of preemptively inoculating us against that and also inoculating our public discourse 
against the kinds of political footballing that we saw with the Obama administration, where for the sake of winning a fight with Republicans and not looking, you know, too crazy and and too kind of stupid, they were willing to gamble with the whole US economy rather than admit that they didn't have to shut down the government or, you know, cut down social security checks. They could just make this claim. I think it's very dangerous to lie to the public to the point that you're advocating explicitly unconstitutional behavior rather than saying maybe we need to start telling a new story about money. You know, we can teach ourselves these social myths that guide our public policy making. We need to tell a new one about money so that we can stop running into these huge problems. Well, so this is one aspect of your paper I thought was really interesting because it seems like like one of the big objections to the reframing that you're suggesting is that somehow this myth about the monetary system is really necessary in order for the system to continue working in a kind of in the way that it's currently kind of chugging forward and that it'll be some terrible crisis if people have a different understanding. But I mean, at least as far as I can tell, the sophisticated players already understand this. And the kind of regular everyday people don't have the first clue about what's taking place. So it's a little unclear to me exactly who's supposed to be so upset about busting the myth. Absolutely. I mean, I think one thing is there's a group of people for whom the idea that this stuff is really complicated and and so, you know, difficult that the average person can't possibly understand keeps them in business. You know, it makes them sound like very sophisticated people who get to write complicated law review articles and sound like they deserve to have a job on that basis when sometimes it really is that simple. You know, sometimes it is simple enough that it's... So I'm recording again. Yeah, so I think there are three... Uh, different kind of uh, sentiments going on there. One is the group of people for whom uh, the idea, it it needs to be complicated. It needs to be sophisticated and and too difficult for the average person to understand because that's what keeps them in a job. That's what keeps them the experts. That's what keeps them able to make, you know, long law review articles that make them um, earn their their salary. Um, And for those people, the idea that sometimes it really is just that simple is sort of... um, makes a mockery of their of their expertise and, and the sophistication of what they, they think these ideas must be. Um, the, there's another group that simply don't like the idea that the public might start demanding more, so that if the public knew that, that, they, that the reason that we can't have Medicare for all, for example, is not that we can't afford it, but just that some people don't want to give it to us, um, that that idea is sort of dangerously empowering to to the masses and to the mob, and they don't want to trust democracy. So that we have to sort of tell these you know platonic noble lies or Straussian noble lies to keep people kind of ignorant, so that they they trust their betters and they trust these institutions um, and don't just say, well, why can't we have you know why can't we have food and why can't we have housing and things um, if if we can make our own money. Um, I think the third group um, is the kind of people that don't think it's really possible to explain this to the public. They don't think that they can ever really get the public to understand. And so, you know, if we can't use some sort of the government's budget is like your household budget, you know, the government's debt is like your credit card. If we can't analogize it down to that level, then we we can't ever hope to, to explain it to the public in a way that will inform them. 
And I just, I just frankly don't believe that. I come from Australia. We have, I think, a relatively sophisticated discourse around a lot of policy issues. Um, I understand a bigger country like America, it's harder, but it's also um, self-reinforcing to, to think that the public is so stupid they can't understand complicated ideas and then to, as a result, not ever actually talk about complicated ideas. Um, and, and one point on that is that, uh, you know, the idea back in 2011, maybe, of minting a coin worth a trillion dollars might have been sort of seen as crazy. But we've seen over the last decade the rise of Bitcoin, of, you know, uh, Ethereum, of all these digital coins, JP Morgan coin, dog coin, weed coin, you know, pot coin, whatever else. And, and the idea of a sort of digital coin is now a well-accepted vernacular and metaphor for the, the, the sort of emerging uh, edge of fintech where I work on. So part of, part of why I, I wrote that paper was to say we can revisit coinage as a metaphor for the whole public finance infrastructure. The Mint is the oldest institution uh, the oldest monetary institution in the U.S. government. It predates the Federal Reserve by over 100 years. The Treasury never gave up its power to coin its own money. Even when the Fed was created, if you read an economic textbook, it says the Fed makes the money and the Treasury just borrows. Well, no. The Treasury has always had the mint. It always had the Bureau of Engraving and Printing that makes paper money. Um, Abraham Lincoln famously you know, issued greenbacks directly from the Treasury. And there was a whole greenbacker party, political party, that was saying we should use this power in, in the name of progressive ends. So as we're entering this new era of digital currency, um, and we're talking about all kinds of digital coins, it's time to revisit coinage and to think about how much of our public finance and budgeting could be reframed around coinage as something that even children could understand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, like if any yo-yo can make a digital coin, surely the federal government can do it. That's right. And, and, and this crisis we're in right now has demonstrated very clearly that we make our own money and there's no limit to that. There's only limits of things like, as you said, inflation. Um, Chairman Powell said the, the Fed has an unlimited capacity to support in this crisis. Uh, the president of the Minneapolis Fed, Neil Kashkari, said um, the Fed has an infinite amount of dollars to support the banking system. President Trump stood up on TV the other day and said, um, we've just issued a $6.2 trillion relief package. And he said, it's no problem for us because it's our money. It's our currency. So if these people can say it in those contexts, we can start to talk about it in, in a broader context, whether it's preventing a government shutdown in a, in a debt crisis or whether it's Medicare for all. Mm. Well, so as I understand it, there have been a lot of new developments since you wrote this paper. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those developments and your role in them. Yeah, so the, the most recent one, I mean, th this idea of Mint the Coin wasn't obviously my idea originally, um, but a lot of the people who were sort of popularizing it are, are friends of mine and things. But I was working with Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib from, from uh, Detroit, Michigan, uh, who is, you know, sort of relatively famous and one of the members of the squad, the progressive uh, uh, first-term congresswoman um, in the House. And uh, I was working with her on some legislation related to regulating stable coins, which are, again, digital coins issued by private actors that are uh, backed 
by US dollars um, and supposed to be kind of have a stable value in US dollars. So whereas Bitcoin's value, you know, fluctuates up and down every day, these coins are supposed to be something where, you know, $1 in, of this coin can be can be converted into $1 of, of US dollars on uh, when you need to. Um, so we were looking at regulating a lot of that and I was working with her on that. And then when the crisis hit, they, they were looking at ways of providing relief. So we worked on a bill called the ABC Act, the Automatic Boost to Communities Act, which provides a, a, an immediate cash relief of $2,000 for every person in America, uh, which when we say everyone, we mean undocumented people, children, homeless people, people who, who've been here for longer than three months, uh, and then $1,000 for every month thereafter for the duration of the crisis. And this isn't supposed to be a... Um, a complete relief for everything. We need sort of various forms of debt and expense moratorium. We need a, a sort of revitalization of the economy and support uh, for state and local government budgets and things. But this is one element of, of a relief package, which is to sort of stop the immediate um, decline in people's incomes and, to, and in a situation where they don't have any money to survive. And we chose to use the Mint the Coin um, uh, uh, financing approach um, you know, in the past, when the debt ceiling crisis was happening, there was a lot of legal debate about whether the Treasury and President could use this authority um, as it exists on the books. But in this context, we proposed Congress passing a new law directing the Mint to do this and directing the Fed to accept the coin, which sort of gets over a lot of those legal um, concerns. And the idea was to, first of all, make clear to people that we have this money. We're not going to run out. It's not taxpayer money. It's not money borrowed from our grandkids or borrowed from China. This is fiscal money for fiscal policy. So it's treasury created money by the treasury's mint. It's not the Fed supporting the treasury or the Fed lending money to the treasury or the Fed buying up government debt that was previously bought by bond investors through the, the debt auction markets. None of that complicated stuff. It's just the treasury makes its own money and then spends that money to give to people to provide relief. So I can explain that to an eight-year-old. I think that's quite powerful. Um, it was designed to uh, preserve the separation between fiscal policy and monetary policy. So a lot of people are talking about cash relief as the Fed giving helicopter money, sort of the Fed sort of sending money out in a helicopter and just dropping it onto people. Um, but that's actually a quite uh, extreme departure from from what monetary policy normally does, which is... Um, manage interest rates and engage in financial sector interventions. This is really, really fiscal policy, and the Fed is not the entity who should be conducting fiscal policy. And lastly, it was preemptively inoculating this proposal against the kind of reactionary backlash that we are likely to see after the crisis. So people are sort of some people's heads are exploding to to consider the idea of, of the of the mint issuing trillion dollar coins, but that's kind of the point is to expand that imaginary on one hand. But whatever their objections are, it won't be that we have borrowed this money and have to pay it back, or that we can't afford it. Um, if it turns out, I don't think it would at all. But if it turns out that providing relief in the middle of a depression uh, is somehow going to be inflationary, then that risk will be borne by the Treasury, by Congress, they will be politically responsible, not the Fed. And we will know that this was this was an, uh, you know, the policy that was responsible. But if that isn't the case, then what we're making very clear is that we can mint these coins, we can use this financing approach. It works just as well as the existing debt financing approach, if not better. And if we can do it for this, we can do it for anything else that we need to to engage in regular fiscal spending for. Wow. Well, 
Rowan, thanks so much for coming on the show. I mean, this has been a really mind-expanding conversation for me and a whole new way of thinking about money. And I hope listeners find it as, uh, you know, <laughs> as surprising, uh, informative, and compelling as I did. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate having the chance to chat about it. Love me. I-